I'll cut right through the pleasantries and get right to the message that the Lord put in my heart. I'm going to see if I can tick off everybody here this morning. Amen. Get everybody in the place mad. Some, some way, one way or another. Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. Uh, I do love, it's, we, so dad and I aren't sharing the same thing, but I will say this, that what he just said is going to work perfectly with what we're going to talk about this morning. Because what we've been given, a lot of what we've been told about the kingdom, told about asking, told about the Spirit of God, uh, is wrong. It's wrong. Most of what you're hearing today in Pentecostalism is wrong. Most of what you're hearing in the charismatic movement is wrong. Not all, but most. And so we want to hold on to what the Lord says. Amen? Uh, A lot of stuff I grew up believing is wrong. Things that I thought were absolutes are wrong. And we have to be willing to say that. We have to be willing to address it. Amen? So I want to pick up, it's not going to sound like we're, we're carrying on in the same thought, but we are. Luke chapter 11 and verse, let me see, am I there? Yes, verse 9. Follow along with me. And I say unto you, Jesus speaking, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh, receiveth. And he that seeketh, findeth. And to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will he give uh, for a fish, will he give him a, ser- a serpent? Or if he, ask, uh, if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? There is something that I think we need to hear this morning. The Lord has been moving in my heart and trying to change my understanding about something For years it's been developing, but I think that we need to understand a couple of things. Your life was never meant to be a book written from start to finish with every decision already made and all of the details of your life spelled out. That would go really well with Calvinism and the idea of pre-selection and that you don't have any determination, your will matters nothing, but that is not The scripture, it is not what God has laid down for mankind. So many people would love to know the future and exactly what it brings. How many would like to know what the future brings? We look at those difficult decisions in our life and and we we stare down some some, uh, uh, obstacles in front of us. We, We look at issues that we don't know the answers to and we would love to just hear maybe a solution for the problem that we surmise might be coming. So many people lust for prophecy to tell their futures. It's really some sort of fortune telling so that they can know what tomorrow holds. But God hasn't planned every detail of your life. And instead, He encourages us to ask. God says to you that you need to ask. What would there be to ask if everything was already told? What would there be to ask if everything was already planned? 
This very word suggests for us that there are there is a subjunctive case involved here, something in which there is not certainty about. We do not have tomorrow. We do not know as secure as your job may be or your family may be or your children may seem or, or whatever your, your economic status may, may be. As sure as that may seem, we do not know what tomorrow brings. You all know I said this. I remember when Carrie and I were living in the trailer at the church for the long period of time. I've shared this a few times, but I think it applies again frustrated and upset about how things were. And I looked at her and I said, listen, things will not always be this way. It will either get better or worse. And this is the truth of our lives. We do not have it spelled out for us. We do not have the details. And God never intended for your life that every detail would be spelled out, that every decision already pre-made, that you would have no will in the matter. But God says, I want you to participate in my kingdom. I'm going to give you opportunity for you to submit your will to mine. I'm going to give you opportunity for you to play a role and a part in what I want to do. I'm going to do it, but I'm going to let you be a part. And how do you become a part? Well, the first thing you need to know is you've got to ask. You have to ask. One preacher I heard said, God has given no covenant with us which spans all explanation from beginning to end. The only covenant given says that we should ask. It's the covenant that we just heard. It is repeated in most of the Gospels. Ask and you shall receive. This is the walk that we have with God. The walk that you and I have with God is a walk of daily bread. It is not a walk of one time to an altar, receive everything that you need. It is a walk of daily bread. When we think back, and, and I know, you know we're preaching to the choir and most of you have been in church your whole life, so you're quickly going to pick this up. When we go back to daily bread, we immediately think back to the children of Israel and we remember that they are in the desert, there is nothing to eat, and God says, I'm going to provide for you manna, which means, what is it? They didn't even know what it was. But, but it was a, a, a grain that they were able to make into, into bread and they were able to sustain themselves that every day they had to go out and they had to collect the manna. They could not collect enough in one day to sustain them for a week. The only day they could collect was the day before Sabbath. They could collect for two days. Amazingly, it would sustain for two days. But if on Monday they decided, hey, I'm going to collect enough for Monday and Tuesday, it rotted in the pot. It was a type. Jesus said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Speaking of, of what happened with the children of Israel, speaking of manna, we cannot have relationship with Christ that, that we collect what we need on Sunday to get us through to next Sunday. We can't have relationship with Christ where we collect just enough to get us from Sunday to Wednesday or Thursday, whatever the midweek service is. It is daily bread. It is daily asking. It is daily seeking. It is daily walking. And if we miss that, then we, we uh, take ourselves out of the participation in the kingdom of God. Ask and it shall be given unto you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened unto you. It destroys trust in God if your entire life is scripted. 
Anybody ever have things go not the way you intended them to go? How about just in the last six months? What, what that unscripted life brings for us is it brings us that uncertainty. And it brings us, it develops within us the faith and the character that God wants to see in us, which is dependency upon him. Austin shared the other day, and I have shared so many times, but he is, he is uh, learning again the valuable lessons that, that the self-employed know, and that is that every day we're on our knees saying, Lord, if you don't provide, I don't know how we're going to make it. And I know I'm not talking down to anybody who doesn't, isn't self-employed, but I just know the uh, kinship that I have with the Lord as a result of not very much to depend on. The unscriptedness of my life, the fact that the details are yet to be determined, the, the fact that I get to participate in how this turns out leaves me in a condition where I am trusting God. Faith keeps you reaching. Faith keeps you trusting. Faith keeps you hoping. God wants you to ask and receive, seek and find, knock and it shall be open unto you. It is that type of faith that keeps us alive and hungry for him. But if I can collect enough on Sunday, if I can say, you know what, maybe, maybe I, I, I don't want to just go that route, but, I, but instead of having that personal relationship with the Lord, one where I need to seek his face for the future of my home, my children, and, and our body, if I can just look to a pastor and say, you know what, I need you to tell me what God says. This is exactly what Israel did with Moses. God said, I want you all to come to the mountain. And they said, no, we're too afraid to go to the mountain. We want you to go, Moses, and you come back and tell us what God says. This is not daily bread. I, we, have to, we have to believe that God places pastors in our life, that God places ministry in our life to encourage, to grow, to help us become the men and women that he wants us to be, absolutely. But if you are dependent upon me to find your relationship with the Lord, you are in a miserable condition because I'm still trying to find mine. I need to get out of the way and say, here is Christ, you follow him, you hear him, you see him, exactly what dad just talked about with the Mount of Transfiguration, where the Lord speaks out of heaven, God says, listen, hear him. That's my job this morning, is to get out of the way and appoint you to Christ. But it is dependency upon him that is necessary John chapter 5 tells of a certain man who was invalid, 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 same spelling. It's kind of weird that way. Invalid for 38 years, laid by the pool of Bethesda with all of the other folk who cannot help themselves. People who are without ability to fix the problems in their life. People who really are sitting there with a one in a million chance, just hoping to be the one. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this situation, but they're laying there and the scripture says that once in a season, it doesn't necessarily say once a year, but we believe it to maybe be once a year, but in a certain season, an angel would come down and stir the waters. And the first person into the water was the one who was healed. Anybody find that a bit unfair? Because the most able of the invalid would be the one who got in. Right? 
The person who was most able to help themselves, the person who needed no assistance, had the best shot of being healed. But that's not how the Lord works. And this, this story is told to us, this account is told to us, that Jesus is there, he's walking amongst this group of people, and he looks at the invalid man, who the scripture describes as impotent, and says, would you be made whole? And the man says to him, I have no one to help me to get into the water, because as soon as I start trying to work toward that direction, somebody gets in before me. And Jesus just looks at him and says, take up your bed, rise, take up your bed and walk. What's interesting about this is, is that the man is whole without any reaction on his part. Sometimes there's a response that Jesus mandated, go and wash or, or, or do this thing. And in this case, it does not record that, but it just says that Jesus said, rise, take up your bed and walk. And he picked up his bed and took off walking. No one to help him. His condition seemed pretty desperate. And then Acts chapter 8 tells us of Philip and a hot and heavy revival in Samaria. People are being saved. People are being drawn to the Lord. And he is preaching the gospel. He's having great effect. And God tells him, I want you to go down south of Jerusalem I want you to go out into the desert between Jerusalem and Gaza. And I want you to go out there because there's somebody there I need you to talk to. Philip takes off, heading down the road. And out in the middle of the desert, an Ethiopian eunuch, another impotent man, another man. I don't know the, the connection there. I'm going to have to work on that some other time. But this man is a eunuch under Candace. He is a very wealthy man. He's in charge of all of her treasure. But he is sitting alongside the road in a, in a chariot and he is reading through the gospel or the book of Isaiah and he stumbles across a, a portion of scripture that he does not understand. And something inside of his heart uh, begins to stir and he says, I, you know, I want to know what this means. And just so happens that God has sent Philip along the road. And Philip runs up to his chariot and he says, do you understand what you read? It sounds a lot like what Jesus asked the man. He needed, a, he needed somebody to come in and fix a problem in his life. He was unwhole. He was broken and he needed help. This man needs spiritual help. And Philip says to him, do you understand what you read? And the man responds, I don't have anybody to explain to me what I'm reading here. How could I possibly understand? Do you see a connection here? That similar type of thought. Jesus literally almost says to the man, I mean, you could take it that he just says, why don't you just ask me? You need help? Just ask me. Rise, take up your bed and walk. And now this man, this, this Ethiopian eunuch sitting in his, in his chariot, Philip says, do you, do you know what you read? He says, I don't know. I don't have anybody to tell me. And Philip basically says, hey, just ask me. I'll explain it to you. And he begins to point him to Christ and where Jesus is, is the picture of this passage. And I begin to think about how these two things work together. The impotent man, unable to help himself, laying beside a pool. The eunuch sitting in a desert, unable to understand what he reads with no one to explain it to him. Jesus says, do you want to be whole? Philip says, do you understand what you read? 
Can I stir up your faith for a moment this morning and say to you that God knows what you need before you ask, but that God is waiting for you to ask. God's ready with the response for His children, but He is waiting for you to fall into covenant with Him and say, Lord, I want you to answer the problems in my life. I need you to give explanation to the exegesis, the understanding of your spirit in my life. So whether you are in need of of healing or whether you are in need of spiritual direction, the answer isn't the prayer. It's not that you're asking some specific way. It's the one you're asking. It's who you're asking. And we could go a whole lot of different directions out of Luke chapter 11. Sadly, so many churches do. Ask and you shall receive. Has anybody heard a message about ask and you shall receive? A lot of them. It it has become more or less a rubber stamp of whatever it is that you want. All you need to do is ask and God's going to give it to you. But I think that verse 13, which is all part of Jesus' saying, he closes his statement with verse 13. So look at that again. Luke eleven thirteen. he says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them who... Everybody say ask. So let's get it out of the natural. Let's take it away from, you know what? I want a new Mercedes in the driveway. I want a better home. I need a raise at my job. Um, I need better children, better spouse. Let's get it out of all of that stuff. Because Jesus literally hones in on the topic. He says, listen, I'm going to focus it down. I'm going to tell you what I'm talking about. Don't you thank God that he does that sometimes? Because had he left this just with verse 9, boy, we could have thought all kinds of things. And in, I believe it's in the book of Matthew, or it might have been Mark, it does not record that if you ask for the Spirit, but it talks about if you ask of anything, good thing. So I think this is an important passage that we understand what Jesus was talking about. I don't want to miss the scope of what Jesus is saying in this chapter. He doesn't hide his intent. I think this is what I want to drive home to you today to be clear about, is that Jesus is not hiding. There is no subliminal message in this text. He is making very clear. He gives an analogy. He says, listen, if you or a father, and your child comes to you and says, I am hungry. We can just sum it up with this. Your child comes to you and says, I am hungry. None of you would throw a snake or a scorpion into his hand, something that would harm him as a result of his hunger. But every one of you, as an evil, wicked, naturally born sinner, you don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to be a good person. If that child were to come to you, and say, hey, I'm hungry, you're going to return to them what they need to eat. 
And Jesus draws that parallel for us with his spirit. Notice when he says, listen, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give to you the Holy Spirit if you ask? Notice what he doesn't say. He does not say he will give his spirit to those who tarry in the altar for hours. Everybody notice that? Because that's what I was taught growing up. Anybody else grow up in that environment where you had to get down at the altar and you had to pray through and, and all of those things? And that was, what, that was what I understood growing up. He does not say that. Do you notice he does not say he will give his spirit to those who speak in tongues? Anybody notice that? You notice he does not say he will give his spirit to those who wear the right things or have perfect doctrine. Does anybody see any precondition in the text? We read it. Does he offer any prerequisite to receiving his spirit? Everybody say no. It's not a trick question. But what does he tell us to do? Everybody say it. Ask. That's it. That's what he says. If you being evil know how to give to your children when they ask you, how much more will your heavenly Father give to you His Spirit if you ask? This is not complicated. Now, I know for me, I've been thinking about this for a while, so I know this has to settle in on some of you because I had to settle in on me. Because my immediate process goes to all sorts of things that disqualify you from being able to receive the Spirit of God. All sorts of things that, that uh, theologically don't line up with this philosophy. Anybody else having those thoughts come at you just a little bit? I'm the only one. But to those who ask, does this mean that any old, rank, vile, evil pervert can ask his Spirit and it will be given to them? No, it does not. First, Jesus uses the terms children and father, which then directly applies and implies sonship and relationship. So he's not saying, hey, any old vile person, just say, hey, God, I want your spirit and you're going to get it. No, no, no. That's not what he's saying. There is a prerequisite, and the prerequisite is sonship. It is you submitting your life to Christ. It is you saying, you are my father, I am your son, I'm going to follow you. Another way, another terms we could use, you are the rabbi, and I am the student. You are the master, and I'm just under you, I'm trying to be taught by you. So there is, a, there is definitely this implication. And secondly, he speaks of the Holy Spirit, which implies holiness. And that is not something that most anybody is asking for. Most people, certainly the world is not asking for holiness. What is interesting in the book of uh, Acts in the 8th chapter, just before Philip goes down and meets the eunuch, you're going to find about a man named Simon 
who wanted to try to purchase the gifts of God for his own use. I know a lot of people today in the charismatic movement are trying to possess the gifts of God for their own use. Their own ministries, their own healings. That doesn't work. God is not pleased by that thought. But what does God want for us? Listen, when he says ask, if you ask for his spirit, we got people in here who've grown up Baptist. We have people in here who grew up holiness. You have people in here who grew up Trinitarian. You got people in here who've only known oneness. You got all kinds of different theological perspectives. When we strip away all of that, and we just simply take, and we can go a lot of scriptures to back this up, but for the sake of time this morning, if we just simply take the text and what Jesus is saying, he does not ask, he does not say to us, ask so that you can prophesy. He does not say to us, ask so that you can do miracles. He does not say to us, ask so that you will have words of wisdom. He does not say to us, ask so that you can have tongues. These are things that should never be sought after. If you are seeking after miracles, you are an evil and adulterous generation. If you are seeking after tongues, I know somebody who said, I'm going to go to this church because I want tongues. You are an evil and adulterous person. Because you do not savor the things of God. The Spirit of God is not there so that we can receive giftings for our lives. The Spirit of God is there so that we may be baptized in His Spirit and walk uprightly for Him. This is the function of God's Spirit in your life. God's Spirit is not to bring to you things so that you can be super spiritual or holier than other people. God's Spirit is not there so that you can prophesy. God's Spirit is not there so that you can do miracles, signs, and wonders. That is not what the Spirit of God is for in your life. The Spirit of God is there to breathe life into that new birth, that new creation that Paul says in Corinthians you have become. And to empower you to walk as an upright, godly man or woman. Everybody say amen. This is the function of the Spirit of God. Is there prophecy? Yes. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, where there is prophecy, it's going to cease. Where there are tongues, they're going to vanish away. You want to learn a language? Get Babel. You want to speak a different language? Learn it. God is not here so that you can exercise some sort of super spirituality. And that's what his spirit is about. Absolutely not. Now, if there's somebody here who does not speak English and God needs to get a message to him, can he anoint one of us to be able to deliver the gospel of Jesus Christ to them in a language we do not know? Absolutely yes. But that is not what we are to seek. This is where we get off. This is where we get really confused. you got a bunch of super dysfunctional people 
all messed up in their ideas and understanding because we have focused and emphasized things that do not matter to God. Sinners prophesy. Wicked sorcerers do miracles. All kinds of people can speak in different languages. But only his children receive his Holy Spirit. That's it. There, there is no evidence. I've thought about this so many times. I've heard this. I can't tell you hundreds of times I've heard this throughout my life. These signs shall follow them that believe. And so if you're a, a gospel preaching church, then the church is going gonna, is gonna to see miracles and, and that's going to prove that the, that the Spirit of God is there. Anybody heard that message? I, I've heard that. I can't tell you how many times. But then all I have to do is go back to the book of Exodus and watch as, as Pharaoh's sorcerers mimic and copy every single miracle that God did through Moses. Is that evidence that they're godly men? So we have to understand that, that God is trying to give to his children something that is not accessible to sinners in the world. It's not available to anybody but his own children, his disciples. This is the spirit he wants to give us. You say this morning, well, but Rodney, I thought we received the spirit when we were born again and we surrender our lives to him. We do. I believe and I think it's very clear within Scripture that if you, when, when you say, Lord, I, I, want to, I want to surrender my life to you, when you are repentant in your heart and you turn your life toward Christ, I believe that you receive the Spirit of God into your life, that we have to. In fact, Romans says that we're none of His if we do not. So it, it is absolutely mandatory and essential. If you sit here today and you call yourself a Christian, then you are... You have the Spirit of Christ in you. Amen? Some of you didn't say amen, so we might need to you know, preach a different message tonight. Josh, get lined up for, for the other message for people who didn't say amen. I want you to look at Romans chapter 8 really quick. And I am actually working toward being done. But I want you to look at a, a couple of things I want to point out. Romans chapter 8 and verse 8. Man, you could start in verse 1 and really, I mean, probably should, but for the sake of time, we'll just start in verse 8. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. I think this is worth pointing out. It doesn't say that they which are in the flesh do not please God. It's literally impossible. You can't. Operating in our natural realm, doing what we naturally want to do, it is impossible for us to please God. Be, to be carnally minded is, just previously here, is death. But to be spiritually minded is life. Look at verse 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, 
The body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. It is the spirit of God that births the new creation that we are. You cannot be exactly where Nicodemus asked Jesus, do I have to enter? We covered that a few weeks ago. Do I have to enter into my mother's womb again? No, no, no. This is a spiritual birthing. So the spirit of God must be present with you in order for you to be a quote unquote Christian. For you to be a disciple, for him to be your father and you to be his children. The spirit of God must be present. But I stand in opposition to the dominant Pentecostal theology that you receive the Holy Ghost and you got it. And the way that you keep the Holy Ghost sharp is by speaking in tongues. I defy that theology this morning. There is nothing in the scripture that suggests that you need to act out any spiritual gifting to keep the spirit sharp in your life. I don't know where the demand came. I don't know where we picked up this idea. Where people, I've, I've heard that again. I can't tell you. I grew up Pentecostal. I can't tell you how many times I heard that. Boy, you better keep that Holy Ghost sharp in your life. You better speak in tongues. If you don't speak in tongues, man, that thing will slip away. What, what's going to slip away from you? What, do you? what is slipping away? You don't possess the Spirit of God. I do not believe that we as Christians own the Spirit of God. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm not saying we're not temples because Paul said we are temples of God. Do you not know that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit? But that's a place where he chooses to abide. It's not one where we've got a lock on the door that he can't get out of. It's not something that we possess, that we own, that we control. And now we say, hey, listen, I've got the Holy Ghost. You know how I can prove it to you? Let me speak in tongues and I'll show you. I've got the Holy Ghost. Let me, let me tell you how you can know. I'm going to prophesy for you. There's no evidence in that that the Spirit of God is present in your life. You know what the evidence of the Spirit of God being present in your life is? Holiness. Those who are his have put to death the works of the flesh. Those who are in the light are no longer walking in darkness. Jesus said, when you have become filled with the Spirit of God, you shall become witnesses of me. The evidence for your life that the Spirit of God is present, the Holy Ghost baptism, that idea is wrong. The evidence that the Spirit of God is present in your life is his work of holiness inside of you. And the truth is, there is nothing that you could do to show that the Spirit of God is in your life that I can see. Because you can be full of the devil and prophesy. You can be full of the devil and look just like the perfect church person. The evidence 
is on the inside. The evidence is the fruit that comes out of the life. Not fruit of the Spirit in the sense of gifts, but fruit of the Spirit in the sense of those things that are, that are love, joy, peace, long-suffering, temperance. That's the inside work, and it's not something I can even produce. The evidence cannot be something that I can see. If it's something I can see, it's something that can be faked. But God's Spirit is there. So I do not believe that we, in this sense, possess the Spirit of God. I do not believe that wherever you go, God goes with you. That whatever you choose to do, I've got the Holy Ghost, so whatever I choose to do, it's what God wants me to do. And wherever I go, if I go to the bars, He goes with me. If I go to the strip club, He goes with me. If I, if I do, you know, go out and murder somebody, He's right there with me because, I mean, I own the Spirit. I got it. It's in your submission to his spirit, that the spirit remains upon you and in your life. It's only in submission. It's in yielding to his direction. So when you hear the spirit of God speak into your life and you submit to that, you are now walking in his spirit. And those who walk in the spirit do not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. I don't believe that we possess the Spirit of God, but it breathes life into our inner man. It brings life to the new creation. I see it this way. His Spirit dwells in us only as much as we abide in Him. Isn't that what John 15 says? Jesus speaking said, abide in me takes nearly a whole chapter there just to talk about abiding in him and says, if anyone does not abide in me, then he has no life. And the ones who have no life are shriveled up and dying. They are cut off and they are cast into the fire. His, his imploring to his disciples at the very last is you need to abide in me. You ever notice that he, he didn't really encourage them about all the spiritual gifts? Anybody ever notice that? Anybody else ever notice that in the book of 1 Corinthians, where you see all the talking about the gifts, you find the most carnal, corrupt church that Paul deals with? It's there that the son is sleeping with his father's wife. In that church, the one that has all the giftings, See, Jesus was about us abiding. He wants us to stay in him because when we stay in him, then his spirit stays in us. So I don't want you to think about his spirit. We're going to get to it here in a second about asking, but I don't want you to think about his spirit as something that you possess or something that you get as though it's the coronavirus. You do not catch the spirit of God. Uh, again, I literally remember being in services and, and maybe sitting back and somebody come up and say, hey, the, man, the Spirit of God's moving down there. Look, at it's on that person. You better get up there. By Anybody ever had that happen? That you catch that? No. No, no, no. The Spirit of God is present because we submit to His Spirit. It's... It's not at all what you think. It's not at all what 
what we grew up believing and being taught. It's about the submission to him. There's another thing that I believe here. And that is that the spirit of God is not given an equal portion to everybody. I believe that the spirit that breathes life is given to those who are his children. But I don't believe the same portion is given to every person. And it's not about spiritual uh, you know, maturity necessarily. It's just there is differences in, in giftings. Does not the scripture say that? There's differences in giftings. There's those who are used of God in a greater way. And I'm going to tell you the, what, it, what it's about. It's not about because they're greater people or because they, they do certain things. It's because they are more yielded. And I'm going to tell you the truth tonight. I know, or this morning. I know you probably may not want to believe this. But how you live your life absolutely affects how much the Spirit of God is poured out inside of you. Yeah, I'm going against the grain of every scholar. The Baptists don't believe this happens anyway, and the Pentecostals don't want to buy that there's some level. But John chapter 3, and I believe it's 34 or 35, it speaks of Jesus and it says, And the Spirit of God was given to him without measure. Which says to me that the Spirit of God is given to other people with measure. Is that fair logic for everybody here? So there is a pouring out of the Spirit of God. While I possess, I have the Spirit of God in me. It brings life within me. I am a new creation because of the Spirit of God. There is something else that God wants to do with His Spirit. Do you understand what I'm saying? Now, we're going to take it from that spiritual life that has produced new birth in us to a father who has a child who is hungry and says, Dad, I need something to eat. I want some bread. And if you, being evil, know how to give bread to your children when they're hungry then how much more does your heavenly Father know how to give to you His Spirit of holiness if you will ask Him? The question is, today, do you recognize your need for His holiness in your life? The question to me is clear from this text is not whether God is willing to give to us an abundance of his spirit. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and that you might have it more, everybody say it, abundantly. And we just read the spirit is life. Jesus' spirit in us is there for life and God's desire is that we would have an abundance of that life. But there are some cold hard facts and some truths that are inconvenient that you need to hear this morning. We are his vessel. We are his temple. We are available for his spirit to reside in us. But if we fill ourselves so full of our jobs, of our careers, of entertainment, of our families that we have no more room for him, 
there is going to not be an abundance of His Spirit in your life. I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm not saying you're not born again. I can't judge that. I can't judge that no matter what you look like or act like. I can't, I can't tell you because you dress all a certain way you're saved. I don't know that. But the truth is, if you're hungry and you ask God, He is ready to give to you His Spirit. Are you hungry? Let that sink in for a second. Are you hungry? Are you satisfied with more stuff? Are you more hungry for His Spirit being alive inside of you, the abundance of His Spirit in you, than you are for the movie that you would rather watch? I'm going to hit home. I know, you know we don't like to hit home, but I'm going to hit home. All you young people, games, video games, computers, they destroy your hunger for the Lord. Amen. Period. They sit in the place. They fulfill the emptiness. You're empty because you need to be filled with His Spirit. And those things fill the emptiness. They are pork rinds. Cotton candy. And you cannot have the fullness of the Spirit of God when you are giving yourself to those things. So how, how do you know that? I can give you a, lot, a long list, but let's just give you one. I'm going to tell you how. Because you're not going to ask when you fill yourself with all that garbage. You will never ask because you won't be hungry. It's pseudo. It takes the place of it. We have to ask ourselves this morning, the question is not, does God want to pour out His Spirit upon our lives? Does He want abundance to flow out of us? Does He want rivers of living water to flow from me to my co-workers and to my home, to my children, to my family? That's not the question. The question is, am I willing to ask, understanding what I am going to have to sacrifice to receive of His Spirit? That's the question. We don't want to talk about being baptized in the Holy Ghost. Nobody ever wants to talk about sacrificing those areas of our life that we are filling with everything but God. There's some things that you should expect. There's some things that you should expect when you ask God for His Spirit. The first thing you need to expect is holiness. Holiness of your heart. I'm not talking about the way you dress. I'm not talking about the shoes you wear. I'm talking about a holiness of your heart. I've come to believe through the years, I've said it often, but any move of the Spirit of God in your life that does not produce holiness was not the Spirit of God. Any move of the Spirit of God that does not draw you out of where you're at and into deeper relationship with Christ is not the Spirit of God. It's something else. It's what Pastor said two weeks ago, I believe. Where, is there another Spirit that people are getting? Is there something else that's happening? 
I think there's a lot of people who are getting a lot of spirits, but the spirit of Christ will always draw you into holiness, which is separation. You're going to separate yourself unto him. You should expect holiness. You should expect a change in your perspective. I'm going to dare you this week to ask the Lord. I I, I challenge you when we're done here. I'm just going to have you ask of the Lord, because the scripture says that we should, that he would give us the fullness of his spirit. But I want to set this up with what to expect. You need to expect your perspective to change. You need to expect your priorities to change. Because you're not going to get his spirit continuing to live your life for yourself. He is going to draw you from where you're at to somewhere else. And okay, well, you know what? I just want to see if I can make it just on that new life that I got. And I just kind of live my life and and I'm a Christian. I, I say, I don't want to live that way. I don't know how that results. All I know is that there should be a desperation inside of my life that says, Lord, I want the fullness of everything you are in me. Empty me of myself. We sing those songs, but is that really the heart of what we mean? Do we really choose to be emptied and separate ourselves unto Christ and say, Lord, I just want to please you. I'm not talking about some emotional experience. In fact, let me tell you some things you should not expect when you ask this. When you say, Lord, I, you said to ask, and so I'm asking of you that you give to me a fullness of your spirit in my life. Do not expect tongues. Do not expect an emotional experience. Do not expect prophecy, miracles, signs, and wonders. Expect Jesus. That's it. I I mean, is that possible that that's an emotional thing? Oh, sure. When the Lord has touched me, there's been many times in my life where I've been very emotional. Sometimes we'll be standing up here singing and... Tears will start to fall down my face. Anybody else have that happen? Most everybody here. Not every week, but fairly frequently. Is, there, is our emotions, do they respond to the Spirit of God? Absolutely. But if you're expecting an emotional response, then if you get some emotion, you think you got the Spirit. Right? If you're expecting a tongue, then if you start speaking in, a, in an unknown tongue, then you think you got the Spirit. And the truth is, that's not what we're to expect. What we are to expect is that the same spirit that dwelled in Christ dwells now in us. He quickens our mortal bodies. And if I am his child and I say, Father, I want you to give to me the fullness of your spirit, then I should expect that that's what he's going to do. Think back, and I'm closing, but think back to what Jesus said. If your son asks you for bread, you're not going to give him something different than what he asked you for. So if you're asking for his Holy Spirit, then what's he going to give you? His Holy Spirit. Not a different spirit. Not some other person. Not some other thing. Not some other experience but a fullness again because I am flesh 
and I cannot please God in my flesh. I do not follow God in my flesh. I have to stay in the Spirit, and I need the fullness of His Spirit in my life every single day. How many of you realize you need the fullness of God's Spirit in your life? Now, for all of you, you've been in this church most of your life, or at least a long time. Some of you, though, may still have some apprehension because of your Baptist upbringing, some fear of what might happen. I remember being young and thinking, man, I don't know if I want to pray for what we called the Holy Ghost back then because I don't know what might happen. Anybody else ever thought those thoughts? A few of you. You don't have to worry about that because that's not what this is about. You do need to worry about some of the stuff that's going on in some of those churches. There's some crazy stuff happening. But what you don't need to worry about is when you ask God for his spirit, the only thing you need to fear is the changing of your flesh. That's what you need to fear. You don't need to worry about being forced into doing crazy and weird things. That's not how his spirit's going to work in you. But what he is going to ask of you might seem crazy and weird. You're going to have to put down some stuff. You're going to have to submit some stuff. You're going to have to change some stuff. If you're willing to stand up and say, God, I desperately want your spirit, regardless of what that means, you don't need to worry about getting called to Africa to the mission field. Get that out of your mind. You don't need to worry about walking around in this place in a drunken stupor because that's not how the spirit of the Lord works. In fact, Peter makes it very clear. These men are not drunk like what you think. And he's not saying they're spiritually drunk. He's saying this is the opposite of what you are supposing. You don't need to worry about running around this place and acting the fool. The only question you need to decide in your heart, because I really felt this. I've been studying this out, this baptism, as you know, I preached it a couple of weeks and I said, Lord, I'm wanting to understand what you want to do in baptism. And here's what I believe. I believe that God wants us to be immersed in his spirit to the point that something happens in this place that has not happened. I'm not talking about stuff. I'm talking about inside of our lives that some greater amount of God is poured out in us, that there's a greater revelation of Christ in every one of our lives. And that it begins to flow out of from within us into those around us. That even this next generation of kids that are coming up would even feel a, a, a greater revelation of who Jesus is. And know him in a more powerful way at a younger age. This is what I am expecting. I'm not expecting some Pentecostal, for lack of a better term, experience. I'm not looking for fire tunnels. I'm not looking for glory clouds. I'm literally suggesting to each of us that we would empty ourselves and say, Lord, I ask you for the fullness of your spirit in my life. Fill me to overflowing with your spirit. And when you do that, What I want you to expect is that Jesus is going to fill you with his spirit. That there's going to be a newness of life and a freshness of passion for his name. Can we believe that this morning? Then I don't, I'm not going to pray this over you. 
I'm just going to pray this with you. I'm not looking for, an, for a response. I'm believing that as you leave this place, that God's going to begin to speak to your life. If your heart says, Lord, whatever Dustin was sharing with me a couple of weeks ago, he's been praying, Lord, whatever it is of your spirit that you want to give to me, I want it. If that's tongues, I don't want to be afraid of it. I don't want to say it can't be that way. And I'm not, again, as we've said, I'm not preaching against that. I'm not preaching against a word of knowledge because there are times that I have spoken some of you, sometimes God put something in my heart. But what we want to do is believe Jesus' words and say, Lord, I want the holiness of your spirit in my life. And I'm going to ask that of you. And I'm going to believe that you're going to do that. And as we leave this place, and I'm believing that God is going to begin to speak to each of your hearts. If you'll do that, why don't you just close your eyes and between you and God. It's simple. Just ask him. Lord, I want to receive the fullness of your spirit in my life. I just want to receive the fullness of your spirit, Lord. Jesus, I want to walk in you. I want to live in you. And I want to be what you want me to be. And we thank you, Lord. I can feel his spirit right now touching my life because he said he would. You can trust the Lord this morning. I know maybe you've been hurt. Maybe you've seen a lot of weird and crazy things. But you can trust the Lord this morning. If you want to, why don't you just lift your hands in a, in a surrender just let go of whatever it is that you're hanging on to that's been maybe causing conflict or worry or fear about his spirit in your life. And we just ask you, Lord, we're not in a hurry and we're not trying to produce anything. But Lord, we pray that this place would be a residing place of your spirit, God. And Jesus, that you would be glorified in our midst. That you'd be glorified by what we do. Lord, and that you would begin to work. And... Yes, Lord.